Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Cato Institute's F.A. Hayek Auditorium. Uh, my name is Dan Griswold. I'm the director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. Our subject today is the latest book from the distinguished economist and historian Douglas Irwin of Dartmouth College. It's called Peddling Protectionism, Smoot-Hawley, and the Great Depression. This book tells the disastrous, sometimes funny, and still telling uh, story of one of the most infamous pieces of legislation in the history of Congress. The Smoot-Hawley Tariff Bill was passed by a Republican Congress, signed by a Republican President Hoover in June of 1930. The bill raised duties on hundreds of product uh, categories. Uh, raising the average overall tariff rate to the highest level it had been in decades. And that was saying something uh, at the time. Uh, supporters of the bill, such as Representative Willis Hawley, a Republican of Oregon, uh, predicted prosperity and a return to growth. We were just starting to enter what at the time seemed to be uh, another fairly routine uh, recession. Uh, all his predictions proved false. In the three years after the passage of Hoot Smalley, it was probably the most sickening drop uh, in the U.S. economy uh, ever. ever. Uh, turned what was a, a ho-hum recession uh, into the Great Depression. Other nations retaliated against the United States. U.S. exports plummeted. Uh, Republicans were swept from office in 1932. And President Roosevelt and a Democratic Congress uh, began to undo the damage of Smoot-Hawley through the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act. In the eight decades since Smoot-Hawley, the average U.S. tariff on dutiable imports has fallen from 45% to less than 5%. Now, in his latest book, uh, Douglas Irwin explains how the Tariff Act of 1930, the official name, uh, came about. He examines the economic and foreign policy implications of the Smoot-Hawley law, and he points to a few important lessons for trade policymakers today. For example, uh, the questions raised, I think, are why should we care about an 81-year-old trade bill that has been largely sur supplanted, buried by subsequent changes in U.S. trade policy? What can the lessons of Smoot-Hawley teach us about the role of Congress and the executive branch in making trade policy? Uh, is there a chance that a protectionist bill like Smoot-Hawley might arise again under certain conditions? Uh, is it fair for advocates of free trade like me uh, to raise Smoot-Hawley today uh, in the current trade debate? Well, here to share the insights of his work is Douglas Irwin. Uh, Doug is the Robert E. Maxwell Professor of Arts and Sciences in the Economics Department at Dartmouth College. He's also the author of a number of other trade-related books and, and uh, academic articles. Uh, two of his books that I've read and highly recommend are Against the Tide and Intellectual History of Free Trade. I think that came out in 1996. And Free Trade Under Fire, uh, now it, in its third edition. He is a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research. And he's also served on the staff of the President's Council of Economic Advisors and the Federal Reserve uh, system. I'm also pleased to say that Doug is no stranger to Cato. He's uh, spoken here a number of times. He serves uh, on our advisory board. We're happy to bask in his uh, reputation. Now, 
before Doug speaks, uh, we're just going to queue up two short videos that will show the, the cultural and economic staying power of this 81-year-old uh, piece of legislation. The first features uh, Ben Stein playing a high school economics teacher in the 1986 movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, and then the second one uh, is the 1993 debate between uh, Al Gore and Ross Perot uh, over NAFTA on the Larry King Live show. Uh, when Doug's done speaking, I'm going to jump back up, switch hats, and comment briefly on his book, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. Uh, now. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone? The Great Depression passed the, anyone, anyone, a tariff bill, the Hawley-Smoot Tariff Act, which anyone raised or lowered, raised tariffs in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? It did not work, and the United States sank deeper into the Great Depression. We know this works. If it doesn't work, you know, we give six months notice and we're out of it. But we've also had a test of his theory. When? In 1930, when the proposal by Mr. Smoot and Mr. Hawley was to raise tariffs across the board to protect our workers. And I brought some pictures, too. You brought some pictures? This is a protectionist. This is... This is a picture of Mr. Smoot and Mr. Hawley. They look like pretty good fellas. They sounded reasonable at the time. A lot of people believed them. The Congress passed the Smoot-Hawley protection bill. He wants to raise tariffs on Mexico. They raised tariffs, and it was one of the principal causes, many economists say the principal cause, of the Great Depression in this country and around the world. Now, I framed this so you can put it on your wall if you want to. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Would raising tariffs produce another We're talking two totally different, unrelated situations. Well, if we could have the lights go up, please join me in welcoming Douglas Irwin. I'm already slipping on the job here. Hold on. Yep. Well, it's not too many uh, tariff acts that have made the movies uh, like that Ben Stein clip from Ferris Bueller's Day Off uh, shows you. And in fact, uh, Ben Stein actually ad-libbed those lines. They were not in the script, apparently, uh, according to what he reported in the New York Times uh, much later. And I think he was able to do so because uh, his father, of course, was the distinguished economist Herb Stein. So I'm sure as a young boy, he grew up learning the story of Smoot-Hawley and uh, its impact on the 1930s. Um, most tariff legislation throughout history is utterly forgettable. Uh, how many people remember the, the Wilson Act, uh, Wilson-Gorman uh, tariff, or the uh, Dingley tariff, or the Walker tariff of uh, 1846? Um, most of it's completely forgettable. Smoot-Hawley is different. It's a different class. We've just seen some videos that sort of illustrate how it sort of crops up every now and then in the uh, public policy debate. And I think the reason for that is because it occurred at a very pivotal point 
in U.S. history. Uh, it occurred right when the U.S. was going into the Great Depression. So unlike other tariff acts in the past, which we sort of glided through in some sense, the economy kept growing, uh, this was followed by an utter disaster uh, in terms of uh, the U.S. economy, the world economy, foreign relations, and what have you. And that's made it very controversial. Because then the question is, what was the contribution of Smoot-Hawley to the disasters that followed in the early 1930s? And can we separate out uh, the various things? Um, precisely because it's controversial, of course, makes it fun. If it wasn't controversial, if we all agreed, uh, then you know, why even bother talking about it? Uh, but because it's been controversial over time, it's prone to exaggeration. So those in the free trade camp uh, or those who uh, uh, want to keep uh, markets open, uh, it's been accused of uh, causing the stock market crash, commodity price collapse. Uh, intensifying the Great Depression, maybe even causing it uh, altogether. Um, we just saw Al Gore say that all economists uh, would agree with that proposition. Uh, Dave Barry, the humorist, has a book on American history, and he has a recurring riff uh, in which he talks about Smoot-Hawley as the most terrible and destructive event in the history of mankind, uh, which may be going a little bit too far, but that's sort of the, the exaggeration on one side. On the other side, those who uh, favor protectionism or want to limit imports or the role of foreign trade in the U.S. economy, um, Alfred Eckes, the former chairman of the uh, U.S. International Trade Commission, uh, said it really was a molehill. It wasn't a mountain. It's been exaggerated. Uh, Pat Buchanan, everyone knows him, says really didn't have much of an impact on imports at all. Um, Fritz Hollings, the senator uh, from uh, South Carolina, said it's completely exaggerated, just had nothing to do with the Great Depression, um, really uh, didn't, didn't uh, you know, affect things one way or the other. And Smoot himself, um, even though his prediction was we would have prosperity, uh, he said, well, the Depression would have been worse if we hadn't passed it. So that, that's a great counterfactual for you. It always depends on you know, what your, your benchmark is. So the reason I wrote this book is that if we're going to continue this uh, discussion over the Smoot-Hawley tariff, uh, and it seems to be this will continue for some time, uh, it was, in fact, one of the most important pieces of congressional legislation in the 20th century. We're still debating it today. Maybe we should ought to have a dispassionate, historical, uh, uh, accurate treatment of what exact, how it came about, what exactly it did, and what its ramifications were. Uh, now, of course, one word there is dispassionate, so let me put my cards on the table. Um, I'm certainly, of course, in the free trade camp. Uh, Dan mentioned some of my previous publications on this. Uh, at the same time, you know, 80 years have passed, and I don't feel obligated to indict Smoot-Hawley for things that I don't think really can be put at its doorstep. Um, so if I could pin the entire Great Depression on Smoot-Hawley, if I had strong evidence, I would certainly be happy to do so. Um, but alas, I can't. And so I'm going to provide, uh, I hope, in the book at least, a balanced treatment of what uh, is rightfully, uh, maybe uh, inaccurately, attributed to Smoot-Hawley. And of course, even uh, taking that stance, one, that doesn't uh, mean that uh, the, the case against Smoot-Hawley isn't less damning than it already is, because as Dan mentioned, the early 1930s were a disaster for trade policy. The U.S. did make a big contribution uh, in that way. And I think even just looking at the evidence as I see it, uh, it's, it was hardly um, something that one uh, could applaud or say kind things about. So let me uh, begin by just saying who were Smoot and who were Hawley. Um, Hawley was nondescript. Uh, representative from Oregon. He was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. Um, Reed Smoot is a little bit more interesting. He was known as the sugar senator because he came from Utah and was uh, vigorous in his defense of the Utah beet uh, industry. Um, he was also a Mormon, an apostle in the Mormon church, and he was known as the apostle of protectionism because he really didn't see any imports, served any purpose whatsoever, uh, no reason to have them in the economy. Um, uh, he took a particular interest, uh, maybe combining those two roles, in keeping out indecent 
and obscene material uh, from the United States. So we basically want to ban pornographic, or what he viewed as pornographic books, such as uh, D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover. Uh, in fact, he gave a famous speech on the floor of the Senate in which he had a big stack of materials uh, saying this stuff is indecent and ought to be kept out. We ought to ban the importation of this stuff, which of course raised questions about, you know, why, is he, why does he have that big stack and, um, you know, why can he read it but uh, no one else? Now, there's one uh, bit of verse um, from uh, Ogden Nash uh, that sort of uh, is a nice uh, quip on this, and I should say that also that there was a, um, a newspaper headline uh, about this that said, Smoot, Smite, Smut. Um, and, of course, that's, that was his view. Uh, here was Ogden's Nash's uh, view of this. Senator Smoot is an institute, not to be uh, bribed by, with pelf. He guards our homes from erotic tomes by reading them all himself. <laughs> smite, smoot, smite for ute. They're smuggling smut from Balt to Butte. Strongest and sternest of your sex, scatter the scoundrels from Canada to Mex. Um, and of course, you know, that's, you know, he, that made quite an impression. In fact, I think there was a provision uh, having the federal government oversee the importation of, of what were uh, viewed as indecent materials that made it through the final legislation. The origins of Smoot-Hawley I found rather interesting and a little bit different from the standard story that uh, I had been told and that uh, I was sort of familiar with. So economists typically view, uh, say, protectionist trade legislation as politicians responding to uh, the economic interests of various industries out there. So the politicians are sort of pawns of the interests. If there's domestic industries that are being adversely affected by imports, they'll complain, they'll lobby the government, and the government will act in response to those complaints. What I found was a little bit different, that actually politicians were using the interests just as much as the interests were using the politicians. So uh, when we think back to the 1920s, um, this, of course, was the Roaring Twenties. We were basically at full employment. Uh, the late 1920s was a boom period. There weren't many manufacturing industries that were complaining about import competition. Uh, imports as a share of GDP were very small. As I said, we were at full employment. Industrial production was rising. Um, there was no major complaints about imports from uh, uh, domestic manufacturers. Now, at the same time, the farm sector was doing very poorly during the 1920s, largely because they had incurred a lot of debts during World War I in terms of overexpansion, and they had difficulty paying those debts in the 1920s. Um, and they wanted price supports. Uh, and the Republicans utterly rejected this. Calvin Coolidge twice uh, in the late 1920s uh, vetoed legislation that would have ha established price supports for America's farmers. But this created a problem, of course, because the farmers then became disenchanted with the Republicans, and the 1928 election was coming up. And the Republican leadership decided, well, we'll throw the farmers a bone to keep them in the party so they don't try to form a third party or low, uh, you know, uh, uh, vote for the Democrats or something like that. So I said, we'll give them a tariff. It was really the Republican leadership that, that proposed this um, at the uh, behest of progressive Republicans from the Midwest. Now, this is sort of an odd response because most American farmers were completely export-oriented. We are exporting cotton, exporting grain. A tariff is not going to help you. Imports were very small for these commodities. And yet the progressive Republicans accepted this because they thought, well, for a few commodities it might help out, and we can use this as ways of, of, of lowering tariffs on industrial goods, which are the goods that farmers buy, and sort of level the playing field, maybe raise agricultural tariffs a bit and reduce industrial tariffs. And of course, they were bitterly dismayed with the end result, which, uh, uh, not uh, spoiling the punchline, all tariffs went up, and it really uh, didn't help farmers for reasons that I'll get into. So uh, it was really a political ploy to sort of get through the 1928 election. Uh, after uh, Hoover and the Republicans uh, won, uh, the House went to work on the tariff bill. Uh, 
a lot of hearings and what have you, um, but the House uh, was relatively efficient, uh, controlled by the, the Speaker. Uh, they basically ran things through. Once the progressives had seen the actual tariff bill, however, which would have been uh, made up in, in secret, uh, they were utterly dismayed with the fact that the industrial tariffs were going up, not down, because behind closed doors, industrialists said, well, what the heck, we'll take an extra uh, hit on the tariff. Why not? Because um, even though we're not complaining about imports, we could always squeeze them out a little bit more. The real controversy, uh, in fact, I do have some political cartoons here. So it started out here on the left as a political cartoon from the period. Uh, this Smoot and Hawley ushering the tariff bill into Congress, and it goes in as this little pig. We're just going to sort of modify some tariffs on agriculture and maybe reduce some industrial tariffs, and it comes out at the end of the day as this huge pig where everyone's getting higher uh, uh, protectionism, higher tariffs, and uh, it's sort of spun out of control uh, far beyond what it had originally been designed for. The real debate was in the Senate. The, the House cleared this legislation very quickly. The Senate uh, took uh, months and months and months, almost a year. They debated it line by line. They almost voted on every single line in the tariff code. Um, sometimes they would reverse themselves. I think they voted on the sugar tariff three times um, at different points during the, this. And of course, uh, uh, even senators who were sympathetic to having higher tariffs became repulsed at the fact that Congress was, the Senate was spending so much time on individual commodities and, and debating what should the clothespin tariff be? What should the apple tariff be? What should the calcium carbide tariff be? Um, and it just took a lot of time. Um, whoops, these are a little bit out of order here. I, uh, I missed one slide where I actually had um, uh, a, a picture that almost looks like Herb Block, but it was actually uh, Fitzgerald of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch having uh, senators on their desk, not their nameplate, but the industry that they represent, because each senator sort of was putting forth uh, their own industry. Um, when we, we reflect on this process of Congress considering the tariff bill, um, they took into account the interests of the industrial uh, manufacturers who want to limit imports. They took into account some farmers who want to limit imports, say, of wool or of sugar. But the congressional debate was utterly devoid of any consideration of consumers, be they be downstream industries or households that would have to pay the higher price for these commodities. There was no interest whatsoever in thinking about what is going to be the impact on U.S. exporters. Um, do we have any interest in, in promoting exports? That was never a part of the debate. Um, what about foreign policy? How are other countries going to react? Well, once again, the view in Congress was extremely narrow. You know, how is this line of the tariff code going to affect this domestic industry? No sense whatsoever for the broader ramifications of what was going on. In fact, uh, this is not sort of special to tariff legislation. There's a story about uh, Edward Hale who was the Senate chaplain around 1902 or so. And uh, he, of course, opened all Senate sessions with a prayer. And he was recognized on the streets of Washington one day. And someone said, oh, I know you. You're the person who prays for the senators. And, the guy, and uh, Hale said, actually, no. I look at the senators and pray for the country. Um, and that sort of, uh, sort of sums up the way Congress was managing uh, this whole process. Now, of course, the legislation goes to Hoover. And Hoover had been remarkably silent on his view of the legislation. Uh, in fact, he made no public statements about whether the tariffs were too high or too low. His main concern was that there be one provision called the flexible tariff provision, which granted the president some authority after review by the Tariff Commission to adjust rates a little bit up or a little bit down in accordance with something called the cost of protection. 
uh, uh, pardon me, the cost of production, where the tariff was supposed to equalize the cost of production between foreign and domestic producers. Now, let alone the fact that that uh, uh, standard is nonsensical, um, Hoover thought that he could tame the excesses of the tariff with this, uh, this uh, provision, even though historically uh, presidents hasn't, hadn't used it uh, very much. So he said nothing about the rates themselves. He just wanted this provision in. Um, he got it in, and so he was sympathetic towards the legislation. Of course, a thousand economists uh, wrote uh, a very famous uh, petition to President Hoover uh, telling him to not sign it or to veto it, um, and he ignored uh, that plea. In the book, I reproduced that petition, and what's remarkable is how far-sighted it was and accurate it was about the effects of Smoot-Hawley in terms of foreign retaliation, its inability to help out farmers through higher commodity prices and what have you. It's actually a very well-crafted uh, document. So just in terms of the politics of Smoot-Hawley, I think it's an example of uh, uh, atrocious, out-of-control legislation where uh, the means and the ends uh, just did not sort of fit together. And I think it accurately and rightly deserves its uh, reputation for being a, a very poor and ill-considered uh, piece of legislation uh, that looked to the interests of special interests but not to the broader interests of the country. Now let me turn briefly to some of the economic effects and then some of the uh, pl uh, foreign policy or the, the, the foreign export effects in terms of retaliation. Um, so, uh, you know, vaudeville comedians, uh, you know, they often begin a joke by saying, you know, uh, you know, so-and-so is so big. And, of course, the audience replies, how big was he or she? Uh, so the question about smooth is how big was it? Was it the mole, molehill, or was it the mountain? Um, and I try to pin down, uh, using uh, contemporary data from the period, about exactly how high it was. Um, it increased tariff rates by about 15 to 20 percent, uh, which sounds like a, a modest amount, but, uh, you know, that's the tariff rate itself. It only affected the r relative price of imports by about 6 percent, and that's because the rate is different than the, the price effect. So, for example, if we had a 1 percent tariff and we doubled it to a 2 percent tariff, that's a 100 percent increase in the tariff rate, but that's not a 100 percent increase in the price, so it effectively took the tariff from about 38 percent to about 45 percent enough to change the relative price of imports by about 6%. Um, deflation, as we went into the Great Depression, uh, raised the effective tariff, because a lot of these tariffs were specific duties, not ad valorem duties. Um, but of course, that would have happened even if Herbert Hoover had vetoed the bill. We still probably would have had uh, the deflation. So its impact on imports by itself was relatively modest. When we take into account, uh, of course, the, the deflationary impact in terms of raising the, the effective tariff, it has a much more substantial impact, but it, it accounts for only uh, a modest portion of the entire decline in U.S. imports during this period because it was really declining demand as we were going into the Depression that's responsible for most of that. In addition, dutiable imports uh, were only about 1.4 percent of GDP. So if you're raising tariffs on a relatively small uh, tax base, uh, A, you don't raise a lot of revenue, like uh, um, uh, Ben Stein was suggesting, but also um, it just doesn't have a huge impact on the American economy. Import, total imports were just 4% of GDP, and two-thirds of those were duty-free. So these two things, the fact that it was a modest increase in tariff that actually wasn't historically unprecedented, the McKinley tariff was very high, uh, the tariff in uh, 1922, the Fortney McCumber tariff was very high, bigger than Smoot-Hawley in some sense, um, uh, they have negative effects on trade, but it, they're, they're not sort of unprecedented effects. Um, that makes economists suspicious about whether you can really pin the Great Depression entirely on the Smoot-Hawley tariff. 
Um, it's just not that big of a, a shock. Uh, you know, a much bigger tax increase was the 1932 Revenue Act, uh, which was uh, much more uh, contractionary for the U.S. economy in terms of raising uh, domestic taxes by a, a much higher margin. So I think that uh, in thinking about what is the, causing the Great Depression per se, uh, we have to go back to Milton Friedman's work on the passivity of the Fed in response to bank failures, the declining money supply, the money supply um, fell by a third between 1929 and 1933. Um, there are a lot of problems in the financial system and with monetary policy that I think are sort of first order. Um, Smoot-Hawley is probably second order. Once again, that doesn't, uh, isn't to defend Smoot-Hawley on any grounds uh, uh, because its big impact, I think, was not on the domestic depression per se, but on the foreign reaction. And I'll turn to that next. And we can sort of see that here. Uh, in this cartoon from the period, whereas the, America, the United States is building its tariff wall, the rest of the world says, world trade, I'll take my orders elsewhere. And that's exactly uh, what was happening during this period. Other countries um, were particularly resentful of the United States for imposing the Smoot-Hawley tariff for a number of reasons. First of all, the U.S. failed to join the League of Nations and exercise international economic leadership during the 1920s. We demanded uh, uh, repayment of all our debts. And yet, by raising the tariff, we were denying them the ability to earn the dollars by selling to the United States that they could use to repay their debts. And so they said, you're hindering our ability to repay the debts. You're hindering our exports as the world economy is tipping into this uh, recession, soon to be a depression. Um, we're just not going to take this. And so uh, despite the fact that Congress had sort of swept aside some concerns by foreign countries that they might retaliate, um, the retaliation did come very strong indeed. Let me just focus on one country. Uh, because what I found here uh, hadn't been uh, really noted before and I think is quite dramatic. So the country is Canada, America's largest export market and largest uh, trading partner. Um, the pro-American government, the liberal government, uh, was thinking about reducing its tariff unilaterally. Um, it postponed those plans when it saw that Congress was going to go forward with the Smoot-Hawley tariff. Um, not only that, the liberals were now engaged in an election battle against the pro-British Conservative Party. And so they were under great electoral pressure to respond to the U.S. action. And so not only did they postpone a tariff reduction, but they re retaliated against the United States by imposing higher tariffs on U.S. agricultural commodities, which is sort of what the U.S. is trying to protect through Smoot-Hawley. Uh, they lost the election. The pro-British conservative, uh, conservative Party took over. They retaliated again against the United States. Um, and in fact, they matched uh, U.S. tariffs almost uh, 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 rate for rate on many agricultural commodities. And this, of course, had a devastating effect on U.S. agricultural exports. Um, in fact, one of the things I calculated was that the Canadian retaliation alone probably reduced U.S. exports by about 4%, which is almost alone enough to match the reduction in imports as a result of Smoot-Hawley. And then if you were to add on the other countries' retaliations in Europe and Asia and elsewhere, um, it just sort of adds up, uh, adds up from there. So it's no wonder, in some sense, that U.S. exports fell much faster than U.S. imports during the Great Depression. And in fact, that fact, too, is uh, very odd because the Depression was much more intense in the United States than the rest of the world. So you'd expect U.S. imports to fall more than U.S. exports because our export markets held up a little bit better. And in fact, just the opposite took place. Exports fell more than imports, and I think that was largely because of the foreign retaliation. One example of that from Canada. Um, the United States, under the Smoot-Hawley Act, raised the tariff on eggs from $0.08 cents a dozen to $0.10 cents a dozen. Canada said, we will match you, 
except our egg tariff is three cents a dozen, but we'll go from three cents to 10 cents to match you. Now, it turns out we export many more eggs than we import, um, and our exports, our imports of eggs, fell from 13,000 dozen to about 7,000 dozen, but our exports of eggs fell from a million dozen to about 13,000 dozen. So the reduction in exports of eggs was just vastly, uh, was absolutely enormous compared to the reduction in imports uh, during that period, and that's uh, largely to Canada. Um, Cuba as well. Um, here's where we d sometimes don't anticipate the political impacts that U.S. tariff policy has on other countries. Not only did we, f in some sense, contribute to the fall of the uh, pro-American liberal government in Canada, but there was a revolution in Cuba in 1933 where the pro-American government fell, in part because of the distress faced by the sugar economy, um, in part because the U.S. imposed the Smoot-Hawley tariff that kept out sugar, one of Smoot's uh, legacy. And in fact, uh, economists have gone through uh, time after time, even in the 1950s, U.S. sugar policy was responsible for destabilizing Cuba and may have led to uh, anti-American uh, sentiment and uh, governments there. Um, Britain um, didn't directly retaliate, but they indirectly retaliated by forming the imperial preference movement uh, with its colonies. And of course, with the pro-British government in Britain, they were now set up to uh, have a preferential trade arrangement that explicitly discriminated against the United States and harmed U.S. exports. In fact, it was discrimination against the United States that is much more harmful than a generalized rise in tariffs abroad, because if you create a margin of preference against the United States, you're going to shift a lot of imports away from the United States, whereas if you just raise tariff barriers in a non-discriminatory way, the U.S. just loses some of its market share without having the whole uh, sector move against you. So discrimination was incredibly costly for the United States during this period. So uh, it clearly did backfire. Uh, here's Canada's retaliation. You know, we hit the ball in their court and they smack it right back at us. And here is sort of the, the overall uh, view of the time of what Smoot-Hawley did. It, it completely backfired. Not only did it fail to help farmers, um, which was the original intent of the legislation, uh, but uh, it, it hurt U.S. exporters, both farmers and manufacturers across the board. Um, exports fell, as I mentioned, much more rapidly than imports, and it, it really did contribute indirectly and in, in some modest way to uh, the entire Great Depression of this period. So let me just close by noting some of the lessons or some of the legacies of, of Smoot and Hawley. Um, what have we learned? Uh, and perhaps this is something we can pick up uh, during the discussion. One legacy of Smoot and Hawley is one that they very much did not want, which is that that was actually the last tariff act passed by Congress. Because uh, when the Democrats came in in 1933, uh, the next year they passed with uh, Cordell Hull's leadership uh, the uh, Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act of 1934, which, in which Congress delegated trade negotiating powers to the President. And what that did is, is shift the system of American trade policy to basically what we have today, that tariff legislation doesn't take place in Congress where the special interests can run amok, but it's delegated to the President who can then reach foreign trade agreements that still have to be approved by Congress, but it's a little bit more insulated from political pressures. Under that system, of course, we got the GATT, soon to become the WTO, and it ushered in an era of trade liberalization, certainly not something that uh, Smoot and Hawley wanted. Another thing that, uh, uh, where, where the world is different today uh, than it was back then, and one that I think um, um, is a good omen for the survivability of a low-tariff, relatively open uh, trade regime on the part of the United States, is that we have uh, the WTO in place, so there are rules about uh, international commercial behavior, and 
under the WTO dispute settlement system, what we have is a, a system of uh, rules for retaliation. One of the problems in the 1930s was is Congress was sort of only dimly aware that, well, maybe countries will retaliate, but maybe they won't. Today we're in a system where if you violate the rules, you can almost be certain that other countries will bring a case against you and retaliate against you. So it, it, it links up retaliation in terms of uh, a good behavior much more directly than it was in the 1930s. You can't think that you're going to get away with um, bad behavior nearly as much as you could in the 1920s or 30s. The final point that where there's a big difference between the world then and the world today is in terms of the exchange rate regime. Uh, mainly, we have, uh, by and large, uh, a flexible exchange rates across most major countries. And that's actually important for trade policy because under the fixed exchange rate regime of the day in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, fixed exchange rates handicap domestic monetary policy in terms of its ability to respond to economic downturns. In fact, the Fed was tightening interest rates in the late 1931, even though we had a very high unemployment rate and we had, uh, were in a very steep uh, uh, recession, if not uh, depression. They did so because under the rules of the gold standard fixed exchange rates, you had to maintain a nominal exchange rate peg. Now, uh, what that did is it meant not just the United States but other countries, it moved them in a protectionist direction. Because if you can't adjust monetary policy and uh, fiscal policy is also ruled out, Trade policy is the one means, the one lever that governments have to try to do something to uh, get out of a, a disastrous economic situation. Today, of course, uh, I think we've been able to avoid protectionism during the most recent crisis, in large part because we've had very quick responses on the part of central banks. We have flexible exchange rates so that some countries can respond differently from others. Uh, they don't all have to respond the same way. And I think that's actually been very good for the uh, international trading system. So. I think Smoot-Hawley will always be remembered as a disastrous piece of legislation that, as this cartoon indicates, backfired against the United States. And I hope it always is remembered as uh, something that Congress should keep in mind whenever they're thinking about tinkering with the international trading system. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Doug. Well, uh, I just can't recommend this book more highly. It is a, a gem of a book. And uh, the beauty of it is it's, it's thorough and concise. Uh, it covers the ground uh, better than I think anybody has uh, before on this very important, famous uh, piece of legislation. What else I love about it is it's multidimensional. I mean, Doug, Doug's a trained economist, uh, but there's a lot of political science in here, a lot of just good history. I mean, you should have gotten uh, time and a half for weighing through uh, the congressional record and uh, uh, the, what was it, 18 volumes of uh, hearings by the Senate uh, Finance Committee. Uh, anyway, it's just an amazing piece of work. And it's never dry. Uh, I love the cartoons. And there's one formula in there, the, uh, uh, the one about uh, uh, the Keynesian formula. Uh, but cartoons, uh, there's wonderful photographs, uh, and the writing is very clean and crisp. Uh, it's just a great read. Uh, and the greatest strength of it is just the intellectual honesty. Uh, the fact that, uh, like, like those of us at the Center for Trade Policy Studies, uh, we never want to see a Smoot-Hawley bill again, uh, but you've got to call it like you see it and go with the, uh, the facts and, uh, and Doug does that. Uh, you might see a review I've done of it out there that's going to appear in an upcoming Cato Journal. And I, I start the review by confessing 
that I have overstated uh, the effects of Smoot-Hawley. I may have even done it today uh, subconsciously in my, in my introduction. And I think that's a message to the advocates of free trade, like me, to, to dial down our uh, rhetoric about Smoot-Hawley. It's bad enough uh, on the face of it. We don't need to exaggerate it. There were lots of other reasons behind the Great Depression. Uh, Smoot-Hawley didn't make it any better, made it a little bit worse. Uh, but let's not uh, blame the Great Depression on uh, Smoot-Hawley. My only suggestion, it's not a criticism. Take it as a compliment, Doug. I wish the book had gone on another five or 10 pages. And maybe uh, if Doug had taken off his professional economist hat and put on the hat of, of the free trade advocate uh, based on what he found uh, in, in the book. And uh, Doug drew some lessons. But I'm going to be a little more explicit and maybe get down uh, in my street fighter mode and say, here's, uh, here's the lessons of Smoot-Hawley for today that apply uh, to the real trade debates uh, that, that we're having. Um, and the first one is, and Doug, Doug pointed at this, he does in the book, but let me just unpack it a little bit more. The legislative branch of the United States needs institutional constraints uh, to protect itself and the rest of us uh, from uh, its trade-making uh, powers. Uh, Doug does a wonderful job on page 13 of pointing out how the political landscape is always going to be tilted against trade liberalization and in favor of protectionism because the, the interests that favor protectionism are, by definition, concentrated, active. They have a lot at stake. They're going to be banging down the doors of members of Congress. Whereas the people who pay for trade legislation, like Smoot-Hawley, that is not a special interest. That's the general interest, diffused over hundreds of millions of, uh, of consumers who may not even be aware. Uh, and Doug shows the value, and the Smoot-Hawley story shows the value of trade agreements. Uh, none of them existed in the 1930s, at least none that we belong to. The League of Nations was trying to negotiate a tariff truce, but we weren't part of that. And I think uh, here's a message. Let me name some names. Uh, here's a message for our friends like Ron Paul and some people in the Tea Party who are very dismissive of trade agreements. Some of the freshman members, I think a minority, of the freshman Republican members may look upon trade agreements skeptically. Uh, and there can be some mischief in trade agreements. There can be some side deals that are very obnoxious. But trade agreements themselves, the GATT, the Uruguay Round, the WTO, NAFTA, uh, these agreements are on the side of freedom, on the side of consumers. They restrain government from doing damaging things uh, like the Smoot-Hawley tariff. But I think that's one reason why in this latest global economic downturn, we didn't see a return, anything like it. There was some erosion on the margins. The United States included countries that did resort to certain protectionist measures, but they were quite constrained. Uh, the system survived uh, and we're moving forward. And I think uh, trade agreements played a role in that. We, we really can learn something uh, from, from history. I think another area where uh, we can even expand on the lessons from Doug's wonderful book, is the importance of presidential leadership. Uh, the president is the one elected official who represents the whole country, the national interests, our foreign policy interests. Uh, that's a reason why protectionism traditionally hasn't sold well on a presidential level. Uh, Post-war trade policy has been built based on an active executive. 
uh, negotiating agreements through the GATT and the bilateral agreements like NAFTA, regional agreements like CAFTA. Uh, Smoot-Hawley was made possible by the absence of leadership from President Herbert Hoover. There was one Democrat, and of course the Democrats tended to be more uh, uh, pro-trade uh, back then. One Democratic senator from Tennessee uh, rightly blamed President Hoover, who for 16 months while the bill was being written, and according to this senator, he stood by in silence without the vision, leadership, or courage to restrain Congress. Quite an indictment. Um, Doug relates the poignant story told by uh, the historian Richard Norton Smith. Uh, this was uh, when the Smoot-Hawley bill was uh, about to reach Hoover's desk, and a, uh, a, a friend of Hoover's who was an industrialist came in to visit the president and uh, gave him reasons to oppose the bill and to veto it, and reminded him of his own responsibilities as a leader and educator of men. And here Smith writes, just imagine the White House back then, this friend uh, having a a heart-to-heart -heart talk with the president, Hoover stopped his doodling. In a voice that barely carried beyond his desk, he justified his actions while apologizing for them. I'm afraid you'll have to give up on me, he remarked to his erstwhile admirer. I can never be the sort of man you want me to be. Uh, the message to our 21st century presidents, including the current occupant of the White House, man up. Uh, the country needs you to play an active role in shaping trade policy for the good of the entire nation. If we don't have presidential leadership, the system's in jeopardy. Uh, a final conclusion I would have drawn more explicitly, it's there uh, between the lines and elsewhere, but that uh, elite opinion can be right sometimes. Uh, economists and editorial writers of the day were overwhelmingly opposed to Smoot-Hawley. Uh, newspaper editors, uh, Doug reprints a table in there, a survey of newspaper editors showed that by a three-to-one margin, they believe Smoot-Hawley would be bad uh, for the country. Doug mentioned the letter from the 1,028 economists from 179 colleges urging Hoover to veto the bill. Uh, and the politicians of the day were as scornful then as they are now of basic economic advice uh, they dismissed them as uh, this letter from the economists were dismissed by some politicians as intellectual free traders who were hidden behind a mass of statistics and more concerned about the welfare of foreigners than their fellow Americans. Does that sound familiar? Uh, in hindsight, elite opinion back then comes out to look pretty good. Uh, and I say this with some satisfaction as a, a former newspaper editorial writer and now somebody that maybe fancies himself an intellectual free trader. I, I do think it's a wonderful book, but the, uh, there's a bonus treasure, and that is the appendix that has this economist letter. And I agree wholeheartedly with Doug, and I'd urge you to, when you read the book, don't skip over the appendix. Uh, read that letter uh, from the economists at the time. It, it is a model, uh, and I can take some lessons from this. Uh, it is a model of effective economic argumentation. There's, there's virtually no statistics in there, no econometrics. It's just basic, clear, concrete uh, economic uh, arguments. Um, they talk about how raising tariffs will injure the great majority of our citizens. They mention very specific sectors that have nothing to gain from the tariff bill and everything uh, to lose. They point out how exports will suffer too. 
Here's a good quote that every member of Congress should be reminded of. Countries cannot permanently buy from us unless they are permitted to sell to us. That should be engraved up on the Capitol somewhere. Uh, that's a point I make in my latest Cato study that you can find out there. Uh, these experts predicted retaliatory tariffs against U.S. exports. Uh, they pointed out the danger to U.S. investors abroad from these tariffs, that it would be more difficult to realize profits on private investment or to collect payments on our war debts. Uh, here's another thing that should be inscribed at the Capitol. The letter said, we cannot increase employment by restricting trade. Uh, and then rising to statesmanship in a way that Mr. Smoot, Hawley, and Hoover never did in this episode, these economists urged the government to consider the bitterness which a policy of higher tariffs would inevitably inject into our international relations. All those lessons and more can be found in peddling protectionism. Uh, I'd urge you all to read it, and I wish every member of Congress would read it. Thank you very much. Change my hat once again. Uh, invite you to uh, ask any questions you want. I would say, if you would, uh, wait for the microphone to come along. Uh, give your name and affiliation, and uh, please get right to the point of, of the question. Yes, we'll start right down here. My name is uh, Philip Finiello. I do trade and transport policy at the British Embassy. Uh, one of the key pieces of legislation that's even older than Smoot-Hawley that we look at is the Jones Act and its effect on uh, cabotage trade and its effect on the uh, domestic liner industry and raising goods for consumers, particularly those in Alaska and Hawaii. Well, what do you think the chances are of overturning that in the near future? I know that it's slim to none, but um, and anything that could be done possibly to uh, mitigate its effects. That's something that, that Cato is on the forefront of what's going on in terms of uh, current legislation, the current political mood. So I defer to my colleagues at uh, Cato who might have a sense of that and whether you, that seems like it would be worthwhile a, a briefing uh, uh, note of some sort. Yes, I think uh, we'll probably repeal the Jones Act just after we repeal the U.S. sugar program. Um, which is to say it's going to be a long uphill climb, and that is one that we haven't devoted a lot of resources recently because it's not, uh, it just doesn't seem to come up. John McCain, to his credit, has sponsored legislation. Uh, I, I talk about the Jones Act a couple pages in my 2009 Cato book, Mad, Mad About Trade. Uh, yes, it is a purely protectionist bill. It's aimed at shoring up the U.S. shipping industry. Like a lot of protectionism, it hasn't given us a first-rate, com globally competitive shipbuilding industry. It's made it even more anemic. Uh, when we've, and, and then, of course, it's like so much protectionism justified in terms of national security, right? How can we fight a war if we don't have a, a merchant fleet ready to go? Well, when we have had uh, military preparations like the first Gulf War in 1991, uh, they've had to suspend the Jones Act because the ships are so old and decrepit they aren't of any value. Uh, it, it just raises shipping costs, meaning more congested highways with trucks, more congested railroads. Uh, there's just a lot of reasons why we should repeal it, but you get back to the uh, very not, not I don't want to be fatalistic. Uh, we've had, made a lot of progress in getting rid of protectionist legislation, but this one's a particularly tough nut because it's a very concentrated uh, active industry uh, that supports the Jones Act, uh, and the costs are very diffused and, and well disguised, even though they're 
by definition, greater than uh, uh, the benefits of it. Uh, yes, well, right here in the front row. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Theodore Gebhard. Um, how long did it take um, for the adverse consequences or the backfire firing nature of Smoot-Hawley um, to manifest itself to the wider public in addition to the cartoonists and so forth? Um, did the public at large ever come to understand those adverse consequences during the time? I think so, because it was reported in the press quite a bit. Uh, Canada retaliated first in May of 1930, even before it had been signed and uh, fully passed. And their second retaliation was in the fall, after the uh, uh, Conservative government uh, took over. Um, and U.S. Uh, trade relations with Canada was very much in the news. Um, there are also a lot of reports in the New York Times and other newspapers about uh, what Europe was going to be doing. Um, and retaliation in Spain and Italy and what have you. And what, what's ironic, too, is that uh, uh, a lot of the retaliation was against uh, automobiles. We are actually an exporter of automobiles at this time, and they identified uh, the automobiles as a distinctly American product, and so that's what they went after. Uh, so it was manufacturers who, once again, weren't facing a lot of import competition, but their exports got whacked by other countries. Um, and I think this did make some, uh, it did penetrate the, the consciousness of the public. And I think Dan was absolutely right. You know, public opinion, well, we don't have public opinion surveys, but we certainly the, the newspaper editorialists were very much on top of this, and most of them, the vast majority, were very much against uh, the smooth Valley tariff and uh, noted some of its adverse consequences. About uh, right, right here, yep. Uh, name is Steve Hank and no affiliation. Um, I just wanted to ask a general question. These these uh, foreign uh, retaliation measures, um, when, when they did those, th these countries, uh, did they have an expectation that we were going to drop our uh, tariffs, or did they just do it out of uh, spite? In a sense, it would be like uh, biting off your nose to spite your face, since I, as I understand it, they don't, that it hurts them to, to do that. But, uh, did they, what was their expectation is my question. I don't think they were particularly uh, optimistic that there would be any quick repeal of Smoot-Hawley, but I do think that they hoped that it would change, uh, it would uh, you know, punish the United States for this and maybe over some medium-term horizon bring about a change in U.S. trade policy. But it was, it's more than just hitting back at the U.S. They also saw it as, well, the U.S. is really re rejecting us and our goods, and so we're going to reorient our trade towards either our colonies or the mother country or the set of countries that we get along with. So it really actually helped unite the British Empire against uh, the U.S., um, and the same with other uh, uh, colonial uh, regimes. And so the effect was not just in terms of Canada and Britain, but our exports to Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Africa, and many other countries around the world uh, with imperial preferences. And that was much more damaging than just a few countries retaliating because it was many countries and because it, it establishes preferences which distort trade mu much more than just a change in the non-discriminatory tariff. I'd say it really contributed to the destruction of a, of a non-discriminatory trade regime in the sense that countries became insular and said, uh, you know, we're going to trade amongst ourselves uh, in terms of uh, where we have the strongest political relationships. So that's why I, I think the political effects are just 
as important as some of the economic effects. But uh, the lady right here. I'm Rosalind Lacey McLennan. I'm a theater reviewer, but I guess I'm really more of a, a freelance journalist. Um, I, and I'm going to ask my question first, and I'll give you the background. I spent last summer in El Salvador, and that's where I'm going. Um, but to what extent does do private lobbyists have an impact on tariffs? And I'm like, well, the coffee industry, for example, uh, Starbucks and Sara Lee. That's I heard a, an earful. I worked in the coffee fields or in planting coffee plants in El Salvador last summer. I was a, an adult leader for a sort of a civilian Peace Corps, the Coco Da and the Unitarian Church, a group of young people, and we planted coffee trees. And here I was working with former, the, the rebels, the communists, the, our enemies in the 1980s, and we were on a peaceful, it was the greatest diplomacy the United States could probably participate in. But they were growing, they turned their, their uh, swords into plowshares, they were growing coffee plants, and yet they couldn't sell this coffee in the United States. We were loading up our suitcases with the coffee and smuggling them into the country. It's delicious coffee, organically grown, but you can't sell it in the United States because of these tariffs. Now, that's what, the way we heard it. So they, they trade with Venezuela and Cuba and other communist countries, Colombia, but it's delicious coffee and it's organic. And we stuffed our suitcases with it too. And I have to go back there and work again to get that coffee. I, otherwise I, I have to keep buying Starbucks and Sara Lee or, or the, the many spinoff products. So what impact, I mean, what are the tariffs on coffee? And what is this great, why are there tariffs on coffee. It's called fair trade, I think. Fair trade grown coffee, and it's in sugar, too. Yeah, right. Doug, why are there tariffs on coffee? Actually, I don't think we do have tariffs on <laughs> coffee. Um, in fact, we haven't had for some time. Um, and actually, I mentioned that Smoot-Hawley, you know, two-thirds of U.S. imports were duty-free. Uh, um, actually, most of Latin America was exempt from Smoot-Hawley because they exported commodities that the U.S. had tariff exemption. We, had, we just gave them duty-free status. Well, the honest answer is I don't know, but it could be that they could be have higher costs of production. There could be something about the transport network. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, so maybe there's someone else in the audience who knows. About uh, back there. Uh, Dan Liebman, I'm a writer. Uh, what was the trend of uh, general uh, trade at that time? Was it uh, going down and... Uh, <laughs> Smoot Hawley just came in at a position where it was already falling. And weren't there other more prominent factors like the British pound was overvalued? The, I believe the British had cut wages of the workers. You had inflation in Germany. You had the German reparations. It seems those things would dwarf anything that Smoot Hawley would have to do with the world trade. Well, you're certainly right, is that uh, the U.S. hit a business cycle peak around uh, July or August of 1929, and that after that, uh, imports in the U.S. began to fall. That was another reason why European and other countries were very upset with the United States, is because our, their market for dollars was already shrinking because of our recession, and yet we imposed this on top of uh, the shrinking market. So 
Uh, Smoot-Hawley was not a response to the Great Depression per se, but it came about uh, at a time when we were moving from a recession uh, uh, into something much more steep. So yes, absolutely, there are a lot of things going on, but it was a change in policy on the part of the U.S. that made things much worse for other countries trying to sell goods here and exacerbated their debt burdens and the difficulties that they had in repaying debts, exacerbated any overvalued ex uh, exchange rates they might have had, but those things were already given uh, at the time uh, Smoot-Hawley was imposed. Doug, I have a, I have a question uh, for you. One of the many wonderful graphics you have in there is a is a map of the United States that shows uh, the 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 whiter parts are those who voted against Smoot-Hawley, and the darker parts are those who voted in in favor of it. And the South was very free trade, which was heavily, um, I think, universally democratic at the time. And you explain uh, part of this. Part of the reason why we went from the Democrats being pro-trade back then, the Republicans against trade, and now they've kind of swapped places, is that the two parties have migrated geographically. The Republicans used to be very strong in the Northeast and New England, which was tended to be more industrialized and protectionist. Democrats strong in the South, which wanted to export uh, their, their commodities. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, because uh, I'm not sure the South is as pro-trade these days. I mean, that's the home of Fritz Hollings, and there's lots of, there's some free traders down there, but lots of protectionists. Most of the good free traders seem to come now from kind of the Plains states and the West. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit, maybe this isn't so much a question, but just talk a little bit about uh, the changing politics of trade since Smoot-Hawley. So I don't have it in this book, but I do have a, a, what I think is a fascinating chart about um, political support for open trade. Um, across the two parties. And if you go back, you go to Smoot-Hawley and you take it back into the 19th century, uh, Democrats were uniformly in favor of low tariffs uh, or against higher tariffs. And uh, Republicans are in favor of high tariffs or against lower tariffs. And then right after Smoot-Hawley in the 30s, they begin to jiggle like there's sort of a heart attack in the system or something. And by the 1960s or 70s, that's when they really begin to switch. And the Republicans switch a little bit earlier than the Democrats. The Democrats switch really in the 70s and 80s. The Republicans begin to switch in the uh, 50s and 60s. Um, but the parties switch uh, their view on trade policy. And what's, of course, going on during this period is that they are indeed switching regions of the country in which they're getting su their support. Now, of course, the South has always been in favor of higher textile tariffs. That was true among the Democrats even during that time. Uh, as well as Republicans, but more generally, they've been a little bit more supportive. And certainly, as the weight of the country shifted west, it's not just the plains, but it's the west coast and the southwest. Uh, there's been more uh, political support in those regions, which now tend to be Republican for uh, open trade. So obviously, there are exceptions depending on the commodity, depending on the district. But um, as a broad pattern, it's it's quite fascinating to see that that reversal and the switching of places. Sounds like we had a golden era there from like 55 to 70 where we really did have bipartisan support for, yeah, for free trade. Yeah, and you can sort of see that in the voting patterns once again is that there's a really bipartisan support and then they really begin to diverge again. And I think that's one reason why trade is now and will be in coming years a very divisive, politically important issue because the two parties have really uh, passed up on that bipartisan consensus. Oh, right, right there. Uh, Peter Whitney, American University. I teach economics. Uh, to, to what extent did Cordell Hull, when, when he negotiated the free trade agreements, was he trying to undo Smoot-Hawley? Did he do things that kind of um, uh, vetoed parts of it or eliminated parts of it? Thanks. 
Uh, he actually was a campaign advisor to Roosevelt during the 1932 campaign and was writing briefing papers for then-candidate Roosevelt suggesting a, just a complete repeal. Just repeal it. Get rid of it. And that received no, very little, no support in the Roosevelt camp. And the reasoning was this, is that that may have been possible earlier when uh, trade barriers around the world had not yet risen up. But once they've risen up, a unilateral repeal of Smoot-Hawley wouldn't achieve that much because there are still going to be these barriers against U.S. exports. So, uh, A, it just politically wouldn't sell well when unemployment is 20, 25 percent. And B, it's not going to solve the problem. It may help the U.S. a bit, but it's not going to get rid of the trade barriers against U.S. exports. So that was the decision to link lower U.S. tariffs with lower foreign tariffs and give the authority to the president, and that's the RTAA, and then history takes it from there. In a piecemeal way, if you look at the end of the 1930s, the tariff is basically back to where it was pre-Smoot-Hawley. But once again, the tariff had gone up because of deflation, and it also went down because of inflation. And so uh, I've done in some papers a decomposition of how much really was it the trade agreements versus just the fact that uh, inflation eroded the uh, real cost, in some sense, of the uh, specific duties at that time. Okay. How about uh, right down in front? Uh, Gene Montgomery. I assume that lobbyists for various industrial uh, producer groups were alive and somewhat well at the time. Uh, if they were, was there an effort on, on an industry-by-industry industry basis to repeal the part of it that applied, for instance, to the egg producers, uh, for the example you gave, or automakers? Or was there an effort to, to dismantle it just with respect to their particular industry? Um, there were certainly uh, every industry was represented in Washington at this time, and they were, you know, right up on Capitol Hill pushing for their own particular view. They tend to be very narrow in terms of uh, not so much opposing other industries' tariffs, but just focusing on their own tariff line. So you didn't get battles, so many battles between industries about, well, that's going to raise my cost of production, or uh, that's going to lead to retaliation, which will hurt me. Uh, I was much more narrowly focused than that. Um, so n not so much of the bargaining between groups as just concerned about their own particular tariff uh, line they were interested in. Not so much, no. About uh, right there on the aisle. Yep. Go ahead and wait for the mic. My name is Stephen Shore. My question is, did the passage of Smoot-Hawley have any um, impact on developments in Germany between 1930 and 1933? Uh, that, that's a fascinating question. Um, and I'd have to think back to what I wrote in the book. Um, there, Europe was a little bit handicapped in terms of its response because they had uh, trade agreements amongst themselves that sort of tied down their tariff levels. So uh, I think the, the discrimination against the U.S. is much more implicit for European countries, not excluding Britain, which actually did with the imperial preferences. But France, for example, made a lot of noise about retaliating, but actually found it very difficult to do so um, because it would have to pass its own new legislation. So Germany, I think that the issue there was uh, debt repayment, uh, the ability to export and earn dollars in the U.S. market. Um, certainly it was decried in the uh, German press. Um, but uh, you know, the, probably secondary compared to the austerity measures. 
um, that the Bruning government was introducing during this period, the deflationary measures. And also, uh, you know, only think about 6% of German exports were sent to the U.S. They're much more dependent on intra-European trade. But still, I mean, that both says it's not going to be a big effect, but also that's where you earn the dollars. And that's very important for debt repayment. So just because it's a small share doesn't mean it's going to be insignificant. But I, beyond that, it would be I, I don't have off the top of my head the specific impact on Germany. Doug, I, I should mention this book is a product of a broader ongoing effort of yours to write basically a definitive U.S. trade history from the beginning to the present. Is that correct? You it is, just... and you might say that this book represents failure of that project because I haven't completed it yet, and I'm pulling <laughs> out the part on Smooth Holly. But yes, I do hope to get back to that project and uh, finish it at some point. We have a lot more uh, to look forward to. Yes, back there. Yes, Uwe Dadush with uh, Carnegie and Diamond. Uh, you mentioned um, uh, flexible exchange rates and the WTO as reasons why uh, things were not so bad this time. Um, I was wondering whether uh, you thought other factors or what you think of other uh, explanations, uh, like, for example, as uh, Dan mentioned, the um, uh, regional agreements that we have today, how important they are. Uh, the second is uh, how important is the fact that trade is more important today, much more important than it was then. Uh, the third, that there is more uh, production uh, sharing across borders, globalization of production, production chains. Um, uh, and fourth, that there's a lot more foreign investment by the United States abroad that uh, could be the target of retaliation. I was wondering whether you would comment on some of these other factors. Absolutely. And just because I didn't raise them in my remarks doesn't mean they're in the book, because actually precisely some of those points are. So even here, there's a huge difference in the US economy between now and the 1980s. And you ask why you know, there's been some backlash against China, but not it hasn't manifested itself quite the way the backlash against Japan did in the 1980s. And I think one of the reasons are, is uh, foreign investment. Um, we did not have a lot of uh, foreign investment in Japan at that time, but now there's a lot of cross-border investment, and that tends to diffuse protectionist pressures. For example, in the 1980s, we, you know, uh, the big three wanted to stop imports from Japan. Well, once they had invested here, and then we had our ownership stakes in foreign uh, automobile companies, that diffuses the interest and, and dilutes their interest in just stopping things at the border. And I think the fact that intermediate goods um, are so pervasive now with production chains and what have you. Intermediate goods are so important in international trade that now that when you raise trade barriers, you create not just houses, households perhaps being harmed, but also industries and, and firms are being hurt because their input costs are going up and they've become politically activated. So absolutely, I'd agree with all of uh, the points that you made and I, I've stated them elsewhere in the book. Yes. That's okay. We'll get both of you. We've got we've got time. Uh, yes, David Morris, George Mason University. I now you mentioned that Smoot Haley had only secondary effects on as far as his causes on the Great Depression. I've always been taught that basically it was the straw that broke the camel's back concerned concerning uh, turning that recession into a full-fledged depression, given the retaliatory measures there. So I'm just trying to ask can you give us once again a broad view as to what might have been the primary causes and how smooth Haley, as it turns out isn't one of the main causes according to your um 
Well, you've been taking your history lessons from Al Gore, as that uh, no, no, video no, no, suggested. No, 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 Al Gore, but... <laughs> Yeah, I've always, it's sort of like, uh, well, the analogy that's been put forward to me is that it's sort of like the Erie Canal. It's small, but if you cut it off, then there's a lot of repercussions for it. So, yeah, that's... Well, it's good. I, I try to explore all the possible mechanisms, and there are many uh, by which Smoot-Hawley may have really exacerbated things beyond the direct trade channels. Um, so, for example, if it uh, adversely affected uh, the agricultural sector so they couldn't repay loans, so it led to bank failures, and were those bank failures concentrated in the Midwest or in agricultural exporting areas? So there are many, many channels to be explored, and I explore them, and it's very difficult to find a, sort of a direct link. So if you're asking for what was the straw that broke the camel's back, we were in a very severe recession when uh, Smoot-Hawley was passed in June of 1930. But you, I'd say you, we really didn't get into the Great Depression until the fall of 1931 and early 1932. And the reason for that, primarily in my view, and I think this is shared by other economic historians, is in September of 1931, when Britain went off the gold standard, there was a run on the US dollar, and the US stayed on the gold standard, and, ra and the Fed raised interest rates. Here, you know, we, we can debate about how much the Fed should have eased, perhaps, in the most recent episode. But here, when we have double-digit unemployment, when industrial production is down over 20%, the Fed is tightening monetary policy raising interest rates from about 1% to 3%, which doesn't sound like much. But in a deflationary environment, that's pushing real interest rates up substantially. And real interest rates are an investment killer. And if you look at the correlation between investment and real interest rates during this period, it's perfect and it's negative. And so by raising real interest rates and allowing deflation to take place, we killed investment. And I think that swamps, when you look at the contribution to GDP and changes in GDP, that swamps any change in the trade sector or uh, what you, can, you, you could get from a plausible Smoot-Hawley effect. So that's why I think economic historians have been pretty unanimous in pointing out the errors of monetary policy during this period, um, or rather than, you know, in addition to trade and other measures, but uh, th that's sort of a key factor. And that also is a key factor in the difference between what we see today. In fact, Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Fed, is a student of the Great Depression. I think one of the explanations for his response is precisely know, knew what the Fed did not do in the 1930s, and he said, I'm going to may, maybe undo that error, but create some new ones on my own, uh, but certainly undo that error of the past. Okay, well, I think uh, we've got time for one or two more questions. You're doing a very good job of getting right to the questions, so everybody's had an opportunity. Well done, class. Uh, <laughs> Sam Gilston, editor of the uh, Washington Tariff and Trade Letter, so we've, we've studied all your uh, tariffs that you were mentioning, Wilson Gormley and all those. Um, one of the questions came up earlier about uh, the Reciprocal Trade Act. I think within a year after the uh, act was passed, we had a reciprocal trade agreement with Canada, which started to undo a lot of the um, uh, damage uh, from the Canadian trade. Uh, my question really goes to an urban myth. Um, you, you talked about, you know, it, it's clear now that the uh, Smoot-Hawley did not cause the Great Depression uh, because it was passed in, in 30. And uh, the Great Depression, I guess, historically starts in uh, October 29. But there is a myth that uh, something came out of Congress in October of 29 that had an impact on Wall Street. Some, I guess there were some reports about report coming out of Ways and Means. You mentioned that. Uh, was there anything you found that sort of might have precipitated the crash of 29 in relationship to the movement of Smoot-Hawley through Congress? So I have a section in the book on that. And uh, no, I haven't found uh, something like that. So in fact, 
almost just the opposite. So Jude Winiski, uh, one of the leaders of the supply side school of economics, in his book The Way the World Works, sort of identifies the Smoot-Hawley tariff and Congress's consideration of it as a, uh, an instigator of the stock market crash in uh, 1929. But this is actually a period when it was being considered by the Senate. It already passed the House. It was in the Senate, and this is when the Senate progressive Republicans were rebelling against it and were actually taking control of it and beginning to reduce tariffs. So the idea that the stock market crash in October of 1929 was caused because the markets were foresighted and saw that we were going to raise tariffs dramatically is sort of the, the wrong because at that time the only news was, gee, maybe the tariff bill won't pass because there's divisions in the Senate and it won't get through. Or maybe it'll actually lower tariffs more than we thought because the progressive Republicans from the Midwest have taken control of it. So unfortunately, I didn't find any link between uh, you know, the cons congressional consideration of Smoot-Hawley and the crash. In addition, the news during that period, September and October, you know, it just wasn't very significant. So the carbide tariff, that's what they're debating um, during this period. It's just not, that's not news in terms of whether this thing is going to pass and whether it's going to be a big tariff increase or not. Um, so let's see, uh, that's, yeah, I didn't find, oh, the last, I guess, bit of evidence on that, in addition to some others, is that um, if the stock market was reacting to Smoot-Hawley, you'd expect to see export-oriented industries or the stocks of export-oriented interest industries crash and the stocks of import competing industries go up because, you know, they might be helped by getting insulated from foreign competition. Instead, every, all stocks were crashing and there's no differentiation between this trade status of the firms that were being uh, uh, traded at that time. Uh, last question goes to my colleague, Dan Eikenson. Dan, Dan Eikenson from Cato. I'm going to piggyback on a couple of the questions that were, were asked uh, earlier. Uh, you know, if, if the Smoot-Hawley wasn't a major contributor to the Depression, at least in the public's mind, it was, even to this day. And I think the myth has served us well. Certainly, <laughs> it, certainly in 2009, it, I think it helped to mitigate uh, an outbreak of protectionism like, we, like, like could have happened. Uh, Uri Dadush mentioned uh, the, the uh, cross-border investment. You, you talked a little bit about that. Intermediate uh, goods and you know, these, these international production chains. And also today, we have the rules that we didn't have in, uh, back in 1930. So th those three, to me, are major uh, reasons why we've avoided a major protectionist outbreak. Do you think that they're major? And would, can you rank one, two, three? Uh, the presence of rules today, um, the the, the cross-border trade, uh, or and the myth of, of Smoot-Hawley. How do those three contribute to, to the mitigation of an outbreak of protectionism in 2009? Well, if the myth was the most important, maybe I wouldn't have written this book, because you wouldn't want to destroy an underpinning of, of the <laughs> open trading system. And in fact, yeah. In fact, yes, I, I have been poked by others, and uh, Dan did not apologize, um, as he did uh, with his remarks, because, you know, I live in Hanover, New Hampshire. I'm insulated from the toxic political rhetoric that uh, permeates this town in terms of trade and other issues. So I'm insulated from this. I can sort of wax on, uh, you know, with a dispassionate sort of uh, uh, distance. Um, if I was here and I was Cato, more power to you. Uh, because it needs to be counteracted, and uh, if you have to exaggerate a little bit, well, as the economist says, simplify and then exaggerate, um, because you're countering, I think, forces that are, could be very damaging uh, to the U.S. economy. So I don't think you need to apologize if you've stepped over the line in terms of exaggerating every now and then. Now, that said, I think mo most important in my view, uh, I also sort of regret to say, I don't think it's been the rules, because I think 
if countries and politicians are under pressure, they will break rules if they think there's a benefit from do doing so. Um, and I'm not, so I'd say first, in my view, is flexible exchange rates and discretionary monetary policy, because that's the way you can prevent any recession now from becoming a depression. And I think that's a way that uh, you can uh, allow your exchange rate to depreciate, which insulates you to some extent from those protectionist pressures. So that's, I'd put that clearly as number one. And actually, there's some evidence from the 1930s that supports that. Most countries were on the gold standard, but those that went off the gold standard early were able to pursue more inflationary monetary policies and were able to avoid the toxic protectionism, protectionism of the period. So it's precisely those countries that stayed on the gold standard and handicapped their monetary policy for year after year after year as the economy is going down. France, Belgium, Switzerland, the gold bloc, they were the ones that imposed, in often cases, the most draconian restrictions on international trade. Whereas Sweden, which went off very early, they didn't raise tariffs very much. Japan didn't raise tariffs very much. Um, so I'd put that in number one. I'd say the intermediate goods trade is, is number two, because then, you know, politicians, if they only hear from one side of the story, they'll do that. And I think that's part of the story with Smoot-Hawley. But if they're confronted with, whoops, you know, someone's going to oppose this, or they're going to hit me, or they're going to hit me, uh, you know, I may help jobs here, but hurt jobs there, then they're conflicted. It makes it much more difficult for them to sort of act uh, in a protectionist way. So I'd put monetary policy first, intermediate goods, and this, uh, the, the dissension uh, over uh, uh, trade policy for intermediate goods is second. Rules, I think, are important, but I, in, once again, I, I, I think they're fragile, too, to, to some extent, when you're going to something as severe as 15, 20 percent unemployment. Well, please join me in thanking Douglas Irwin. <laughs> uh, just a couple of uh, program notes. I'd invite you all uh, up to the Winter Garden to join us for some wine and cheese. And Doug's going to be up there signing books. If you could hold your questions till he gets up there, uh, I'm going to run interference for Doug, and then you can ask him questions up there when he's signing books. How does that sound? Thanks. <laughs>